0: This morning, we are privileged to have a guest speaker with us this morning. I wanna invite up Jeremy McNeese. Jeremy uh, worships at Christ Church, which was our mother church so many years ago. And Jeremy is in the midst of the ordination process, which is super exciting. And he is the Associate Director of New Wineskins. And New Wineskins is this organization that kind of takes the lead in facilitating global mission for our province of churches, the Anglican Church in North America. Jeremy is ideally suited for that task. He served on mission in France and Portugal at different points in his life, a couple of years in France, a couple of years in Portugal, um, and is now uh, in South Austin. Uh, so um, I don't know how that's going. Uh, but he's married to Meredith and they have two children, Jeremiah, who just started school, and Liesl as so well. How old is Liesl, two? Two and, a half. two and a half. A precocious two and a half. A precocious two and a half. All right, there you go. Uh, if you would, would you extend a hand with me as we pray a blessing over Jeremy? Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your Holy Spirit and the gift of Jeremy's presence with us this morning. And we ask that by your spirit, you would work through these gifts to enliven our hearts and minds to the truth of who you are and uh, the truth of what it means to follow you this day. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you'd move among us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you for uh, the invitation to speak here, and it's an honor and a privilege to do so. Um, I owe a lot to Father Peter. I would not be an Anglican today or even stuck around with a strange little Catholic church that I walked into like almost 10 years ago if I—it's uh, what I thought it was, a strange little Catholic church—but um, <laughs> uh, if it hadn't been for Peter emailing me one week afterwards on my honeymoon saying, hey, I pray for your marriage— all right, so this morning, uh, my papers are all out of order. It happens. So it happens when you write too much and you have too many pages. Yeah. Oh well. So as I'm t- looking for my page, I'll tell you um, the the intro. Maybe it's here. So uh, in February of this year, Father Peter, I think it's February, maybe, maybe a little different, but in earlier this year, Father Peter and I m- met at Lazarus downtown and he asked me to preach on today. And as a, any good guest preacher, I, uh, especially one that's an Anglican, I turned to the lectionary and said, what are the readings for today? Then I promptly went back to Father Peter and asked, <laughs> what are the texts assigned that you would like for me to have? Um, he replied, just stick with the lectionary. I think that's when I began to consider a return to my roots as a good Baptist. <laughs> in, in the midst of all that, I've been processing the, this text and earlier in the summer in June, I was having lunch with a bishop, a good friend, and he looked at me and said, I've got something important to tell you. It's, it's gonna be hard to hear. Are you ready? I said, nope. <laughs> and he said, uh, get ready, I'm gonna tell you anyway. So here I, here I say it, are you ready? I joke about all that, but perhaps today the cost of my own to preach this sermon to you. Years ago, when I first began to think about what it means to follow Jesus and to be his disciple, I, had, I heard the story of Charles Thomas Studd. It's okay if you've never heard of his name. Uh, we're Americans. He's more commonly known in the UK and other places that play cricket because he was a famous cricketeer. From various sources, I've pieced together his short, abbreviated biography. Like many Christians, uh, especially ones who are of some sort of renown, they go by, Charles Thomas went by his initials C.T. So if you Google him, check out C.T. Stud, two Ds. He was the son of a wealthy Englishman, Edward Stud, who made his fortune in India. And at the age of 19, C.T. was the captain of his cricket team at Eton, is a high school team. He followed his high school years and he went to school at Cambridge from 1880 to 1883. And it was while at Cambridge that he began, became a national hero. So imagine with me, did anybody see the Longhorn game last night? I did not. Uh, <laughs> but imagine with me, Cambridge University inviting a professional NFL team to play or a professional cricket team for that matter. It's the same as if the Longhorns invited the LA Rams, the reigning national champion of the NFL to play. And a true miracle happened on the pitch. The uh, CT and his older brother were the heroes of the game in the last few innings and won the college team's victory against the pro team, the national, the world champions. And due to his showmanship in cricket, CT became a household name. He would be like somebody like, Tom Brady is to us, he would be the goat of cricket. And he still is actually to this day. If you ask anybody who knows of him in the cricket world, they would say he is the best then and still remains ever cricketeer to have ever played. But his cricketeering is just a footnote compared to what really marked C.T. Studd's life in history. C.T. came to Christ during his early years at Cambridge because he heard a preacher tell the gospel to him. Preacher's name is D.L. Moody, an American. CT was a part of a small group that met together at Cambridge weekly, or maybe even daily, It's, it's not clear, but they met regularly to do two things, to pray and to make Jesus known all over the world. These guys had big dreams. They dreamed about reaching the whole world for Jesus. They may have been dreaming to make Jesus known to the ends of the world, but they started small. Maybe like you and I might start if we wanted to do this sort if we want to go after this sort of dream. They started by going across the street. They went to their college campus and they started telling people about Jesus. They were, with, they were openly sharing about the salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Many were coming to faith because Stud had influence and he was using it to further the gospel. During this time, an influential missionary, maybe you've heard of him, J. Hudson Taylor, began to challenge the students of England to join him in reaching the millions of Chinese who have never heard. CT heard this call and he said, I gotta go. And he went. He started getting ready to go, but as he was telling his small group of men, six other men said, I will go with you. Hudson Taylor heard this and he said, hey, before you go, why don't you hang around here in the UK and tell other students about what you're doing and how you feel God calling you to go? These seven, these seven men, they became known as the Cambridge Seven, um, another Googleable word or term. As they came to be known, and they shared their testimonies all across the UK, and some went to the United States to share about this vision as well to reach the Chinese with the gospel. Over the course of many months, God drew many people to faith and awaken the church globally for his cause to make Jesus known. In the last meeting of the tour, right before they got on the boat to go, C.T. Studd urged students saying, are you living for today or are you living for eternal, for life eternal? Are you going to care for the opinion of men here or for the opinion of God? The opinion of men won't matter much in the big scheme of things when we're standing before the judgment throne of God, but the opinion of God will. So we better take his word seriously and obey it. Authenticity marked the power of the message of these seven as they went on to reach the unreached. CT admitted, had I cared for the comments of people, I should never have been a missionary. After calling the students to obey the Great Commission, the Cambridge Seven left for China, arriving in Shanghai on March 18th, 1885. Today, I preach to you the good news that Jesus is worth following and being his disciple, but it's going to cost something. The gospel reading begins with Jesus making a distinction between two types of people his followers and his disciples. Jesus had loads of followers. At one point, we know that he fed 5,000 men, leading us to conclude that he likely fed nearly 20,000 people that day, when we count all the women and children that are omitted in this scriptural text. People followed him all over as he traveled throughout Palestine. They followed him because they wanted to be healed. He somehow had this ability to make people, make the blind see and the deaf hear. He even could make the dead come back to life. His own cousin sent word and asked, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, Go back and tell John. Go back and tell him that the blind receive their sight, and the deaf hear. The the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. They followed him, secondly, because he did things that weren't exactly, he said things that weren't necessarily um, politically correct. He hung out with the lepers, who were social and physical outcasts. He hung out with the tax collectors, who were often, the people took advantage of their constituents and stole from them. He hung out with women as well. It was not Peter, James, and John who first came to his tomb. It was the three Marys. Jesus nearly always had women in his company, and that made him different as a rabbi. They followed him because he did, not, did things that were not normal. He did things they couldn't explain. One of my, and they were miracles. One of my favorite miracles is an example is recorded in Mark 4 and 5. And Jesus said, I've got to go across the Sea of Galilee. Let's go across. And on the other side, immediately after he got off the boat, he encounters a man who is possessed by legions of demons, so much so that he had not have the name legion. And casting out one demon, let alone all of those demons, would truly catch your attention. It's not normal then. It's not normal today. We're not going to see it on KXAN normally. But that's the point. People followed him because he was doing things. And finally, in some situations, they followed him because they wanted to be forgiven. The list could go on forever. I'm not going to go down all the things we've been forgiven. But let's be honest. We all are here today today because we have been forgiven something so great that we could not ever forgive ourselves. It's no wonder that Jesus had followers, but what he wanted was not followers. He wanted disciples. Jesus has all summer, in ordinary time, been leading us through the gospels. Um, at Christ Church, we've been reading through the lectionary on, uh, on, through the book of Luke, and I've been noting, as I've been preparing for this sermon, that he's weekly telling us what it means to be a disciple. Jesus in this text is not asking for his followers to listen to his teachings. He is asking for us to take those teachings and follow them and be his disciples to become more like him. The word disciple comes from the same root word that we get the word discipline. And from that, the church fathers used, they started forming, calling our habits, our habits that make us more like him, spiritual disciplines. Jesus is asking us not just to follow him like we would a celebrity, or on Twitter or Instagram, but maybe we follow him all the way to the cross. Remember, it's going to cost something, and Jesus wants to remind us of that. So here we go. We jump in, and the gospel readings, Jesus begins with by telling two or one hard thing and two parables to explain them. If you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and your father, your spouse, your children, and even your own wife. That's not what we want to hear, is it? And neither is it what his followers wanted to hear in their day. The word hate here, I had to think a lot on this. Um, If you know me personally, you know that I don't like Greek and Hebrew. uh, But I spent a lot of time looking at lexicons because of this word. The word hate is, for the theologians in the room, you probably know already, it's it's the word misseo. It means to love less, it's not what we think of when we first think of the word hate in English. We think of an utter disgust, something that I'd want to be, I don't want to be around at all. But in this sense, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, then you'll have to love your father and your mother less than you do me. He says, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to love your spouse less than you do me. If you want to be my disciple then you have to love your children less than you do me. And if you want to be my disciple you have to love your own life less than you do me. Let's be clear, he's not talking about removing these things from your life. He's talking about priority. He's asking for him to be made first in his in your life. Relationships are important. Maybe another way of looking at this, Eugene Peterson translates this verse in uh, the message. Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple. He's talking about being willing to let go and not giving it up necessarily, but being willing to give give it to God, trust him with it. Perhaps in Jesus' day, these things he told his followers to love less were the four most important things in their lives. And I think they're still pretty important. Jesus, in his own life, at the end of his life, he's on the cross and he says to his brother John, remember, this is your mother. Take care of her. So he cares about family as well. He's not contradicting himself. He's just saying be first. He must be first in, in our lives. As Peterson points out, the issue is not giving up something, it's refusing to let go. Jesus is very direct when he asks us to let go of something and give it away. Remember the, young, the rich young man, when the rich young man asked what he had to do to be Christ's disciple, Jesus looked him hard in the eye and he said, go sell whatever you have, whatever you own, and give it to the poor and all of your wealth will be heavenly wealth and come follow me. Let's be clear, Jesus wants us to give up something, he is direct. But what Jesus is asking here is 100%, 100% allegiance. I get distracted a lot. A lot. And even in this sermon, I'm probably distracted a little bit too. (laughs) I have good intentions of getting up early and spending time with the Lord by reading my Bible or praying morning prayer. But I like my sleep. I sometimes think deeply about Compline and teaching my young children, four and two and a half, about ending their days well. But I like to quickly get them into bed after having them recite the Lord's Prayer very quickly (laughs) so I can watch the Austin FC game, Go Verde. I get it. And so does Christ. That's why he's sitting across from me every day and he is saying, I wanna be first in your life, Jeremy. I want you to make me first so you can be my disciple. Perhaps you can ad- identify with some of these other things that distract me from God. Time with my family, my money, time, or my own self-worth, my house and its landscaping, my cars and keeping them crumb-free, remember I have young children, my phone, my social media accounts and the numerous followers I have and those that I don't have yet, um, feel free to like me. <laughs> the approval of others, um, being a foodie and enjoying all the amazing food and beverage here in Austin. Traveling, my agenda, my email, my politics, and in finally, for this list, my ministry. Yes, even my own ministry has been known to come between me and Jesus. If you found yourself in any one of these things, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. I simply told you what comes between me and God every single day. I tend to think about think that we are more like the Ephesian church in Revelation than not. It's easy for us to leave our first love, Jesus, and create for ourselves idols. Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life won't be, won't have any purpose, won't be worth going on. As the song says, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Prone to leave. We're always seeking other things to make, take the place of God. We make ultimate, make these little things ultimate things in our lives. Make good things ultimate things in our lives. Jesus wants to drive this point home to his followers. He then turns the first parable around a little and asks, who is going to start out by building without figuring out what it's going to cost to to finish it? Maybe we can a little bit resonate with that because of the pandemic cost, but that's not the point. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this particular question that Jesus has. And it hit me this past, this past June when I went and bought a car at a dealership in New Braunfels. I was excited about the whole journey of buying this car, even down to signing the papers. Loved it, had a great time, except for the last document that I was asked to sign, which was the addendum. It had the car facts, the inspection, the age of the battery, how many times it's been transferred in ownership. It was the, it was the addendum of like, what the disclosures. The dealership wanted to make sure that the buyer, in that case me, knew what I was getting myself into. Jesus is a little bit like that car salesman. He wants wants us to finally acknowledge what it's going to cost us to follow him. He doesn't want any surprises for us. He already knows, but he doesn't want us to be surprised. He's very upfront in saying, hey, it's going to cost something to follow him and be his disciple. It's gonna cost a lot more than we wanna give up. And he knows that. And he's gonna remind us of that daily as we humanly replace him on the thrones of our lives with some other person, place, or thing. Jesus gives us one final illustration of what it's gonna cost to be his disciple. Suppose a king is going out to war. Wouldn't the king want to judge if the army, his army, is bigger than the other guy's army? But he makes an interesting point. If the king sees that he will inevitably lose, wouldn't he send a delegation to negotiate that peace? The point of the illustration here is that Jesus' disciples must be willing to lay everything that matters to them on the table. For me, this is all those good things in my life, for my family, all the way down to my ministry, and say, Jesus, you are my first love, not those things. We have to be willing to make, Jesus, make everything else in our, our lives play second fiddle to him. He's the only one who can save, the only one who eternally matters. Probably the expert on discipleship in our modern era is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, where will the call of discipleship lead those who follow it? What decisions and painful separations will it entail? We must take this question to him alone who knows the answers. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us to follow, knows where the path will lead. But we know that it will be a path full of mercy beyond measure, Dietrich says. Discipleship is joy. And bringing this full circle, um, C.T. Studd, maybe you didn't think I was gonna bring him back in, but he's, he's here, was a real disciple of Jesus Christ and discipleship. He carried with him a motto, throughout life. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So let me repeat that. If Jesus Christ is God, one, it's on your bulletin as well, and died for me, two, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Discipleship is more than just merely being a believer. We all believe something about Jesus. But this requires us to make love him first and foremost and ultimately. When Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he is looking for a radical lifestyle. A lifestyle built on prayer and scriptures. A life totally dedicated to himself. He's the one with the offer. Bonhoeffer concludes, discipleship is not an offer that we make to him, but Christ makes to us. Jesus is literally challenging us with this question. Which Trinity are we following? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or me, myself, and I? Jesus, may you be the first, our first love, the one that truly matters, and the one that all of our, our ultimates in our lives, the sacrifices that we make, pale in comparison to knowing and following you. Amen.